with an RPG injury. Uh, his leg was duct taped to his side, had been needle decompressed, but needed a chest tube and was just an extremist. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Colonel Dr. Joe Alderetti to War Docs. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and received his MD degree from the Penn State University College of Medicine. He completed his orthopedic residency training in the Army in Augusta, Georgia, and completed an ortho-oncology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He currently is the surgical director at the Center for the Intrepid Amputee Limb Salvage Program. He has deployed multiple times to the CENTCOM AOR in different roles. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Joseph Joe already on. Thank you, Joe, for joining us today. Pleasure to be on, guys. Honor. When we contacted you, you shared with us a little bit of information about yourself and that you had graduated from high school with a criminal record. That's certainly something that I didn't expect from you. How did you end up in the Army as an orthopedic surgeon? You know, it's kind of funny. I, I had never wanted to do anything other than be in the Army and lead soldiers since I was about six years old. My dad was a B-29 pilot in World War II, and I just grew up with his massive love and respect for the military. He retired in 1974, so I was three years old. He became a physician after his years as a pilot. But I always just maintained this, you serve things other than yourself mentality, and, and that's kind of how I grew up. I also grew up the healthy, over-energized child without enough outlets. So just got into a lot of trouble as a high schooler, unfortunately. Spent a lot of too much or a lot of time skipping school and playing with my college friends, racing cars and doing stupid stuff. And my senior year also had some trouble with uh, underage drinking. My parents were older. Obviously, my, my father was much older. And even though his was unconditional love to the dying end, I don't think he quite knew how to discipline that level of hellion, even though he knew what was uh, what was capable beneath. A lot of teachers that would say, hey, smartest kid in the class, but he skipped 63 days. We only allow you're to miss 60 days in a school year, you therefore fail. So I failed three classes as a senior and uh, graduated late. You know, about that same time frame, I had my first interesting bout with the law in, uh, in a drinking standpoint. I was drag racing in Athens, Georgia, and got nailed for doing 137 in a 55 with some alcohol on board. Her dad finally just said, hey, son, you're going to have to spend the night in jail for this, and and you really need to think about things. It was interesting because I I had a a true come-to-Jesus moment. You know, I I remember standing in a jail cell just saying, hey, I I can't do this alone. I I can't do this by myself anymore. Uh, You know, and the the fame theme, Jesus, take the wheel, I got to get outside of myself. And and life uh, completely just changed from that point of resolve of, you know, I'm, I'm going to get it together. 
I ended up going to a little uh, junior college in Atlanta, Georgia, and then applied for a little military junior college. I had desperately wanted to get into West Point and was recruited as a gymnast, but because of my record, no, you know, didn't ever think I was going to get there. At this little military junior college, I kind of fell under the wing of a former chemical corps special operations general officer who was just a brilliant, brilliant man. He was my chemistry and organic teacher, as well as kind of a a mentor that just said, hey, you know, the United States is made of people that reinvent themselves every day. Continue to apply and just see what happens. And so while trying to get my commission through the reserve at this little military junior college, because I at the time didn't want to do anything other than special operations warfare, applied my third attempt. I was Pointed to the academy, and uh, the rest was kind of history, I guess. You know, during that whole time in, you know, southwest Alabama as a little military junior college, I was training as a gymnast. I had to drive an hour, an hour and a half each day from near Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, in order to train as a gymnast and keep my eligibility up. Their head coach of West Point Gymnastics was a guy by the name of Doug Van Everen. When he was in California, had uh, had recruited me as a gymnast, but you know we all saw that my my college career is going to have to take a little bit of a sideline with the army. But I kept that up and therefore walked on to the varsity gymnastic team as a freshman. That whole time period, I was continuing to be mentored by General Kassemeyer, who said, "You got medicine in your blood, man. This this whole idea of killing people for a living, you can only do as a young man and." You you need to think about doing what you were born to do, which is help people. And you need to strongly think about medicine. As I did, probably my sophomore or junior year, I saw John Uhorchak and his operations other than war discussion, you know, junior dissertation. It was a very big projection of operations other than war of his time in Somalia. And I said, holy cow, I got to do that. So at that time, I decided I, I had to be a combat surgeon, whether it be orthopedic or general surgeon, and that I was going full tilt to medical school. And then here I am. <laughs> so you made it through West Point, you made it through medical school and trained as an orthopedic surgeon. And all you wanted to do is get out there and you know serve on the battlefield. And you know, looking at your bio, it said that your first deployment was to Afghanistan on a forward surgical team. How was that experience for you? Uh, Doug, that experience determined the next 15 years. I was deployed with the Triple Nickel, the 555th Forward Surgical Team, which was in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, obviously extraordinarily historic region dating all the way back to Charlie Wilson's war. And at that time, the 173rd Airborne was conducting counterinsurgency operations supported by 3rd Special Forces Group. We were supporting both elements. I had been uh, a general orthopedic surgeon, Fort Sill, in Oklahoma for two years. And Eric Acheson, who was uh, my deployment brother, general surgeon, Angel Reyes, I stepped into line right uh, alongside Lee Trombetta, historic, wonderful trauma surgeon. And we were busy. We were busy. busy. Uh, Lee had stood up a humanitarian surgical effort that was kind of bread and butter general surgery, but was a, a massive effort from an orthopedic standpoint. So I grabbed hold of that and helped Lee 
step that to the next level because it was a way to facilitate interactions with the Jalalabad Public Health University, basically one of their medical schools and their orthopedic surgery program, as well as their plastic surgery program. And then I, you know, I was kind of out running one day around Jalalabad and met my doppelganger, at that time, Master Sergeant Scott Olson, who was one of the uh, youngest sergeant majors in 3rd Special Forces Group. And he and I just started buddying up together and playing around and training together. And, and then all of a sudden decided that, you know, hey, how can we combine operations from the standpoint of 3rd Special Forces Group and 3325, which was the dive team stationed there at Fob Fenty, as well as this massive surgical asset which was Lee and myself and Eric Atchison, wonderful trauma surgeon. And we just saw the ability to really feed the SF group with, you know, hearts and minds. And instead of the usual handing out pills at public health engagement, the SF guys were used to, we could really bring them the firepower of a surgical team. And so that's what we did. We basically partnered alongside 3rd SF and just said, go into the mountains and, and bring us your tired and wounded and injured intelligence assets, uh, you know, tribal chieftains. I don't care if you bring Taliban to my doorstep, I will take care of them and we will allow them to see, we will help them to see the massive heart of the American soldier and the American medical might. And that's exactly what happened. We did, but everything from osteomyelitis to late trauma reconstruction, skin grafts, very complex flaps. We had a plastic surgeon that came over. Russ Martin eventually joined us. And it became this just fantastic Camelot of medical might. So I, I learned there, cut my teeth there. We, you know, after days of operating and, and just kind of look at each other and go, there's, there's no way that we, we just did that from a surgical reconstruction, from a life, you know, saving posture. There are dudes that, you know, the triple nickel that were dead for all intents and purposes. So, Joe, tell us, you, you've deployed about five times or more, potentially. Tell us what is your most memorable clinical experience from one of your deployments? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you what, Wayne, I, I would say... Two opportunity. One was uh, Bob Sharana with the 1980th Ford Surgical Team in 2012. And that was a memorable experience in that it really illustrated just the power of the team. The reservist uh, unit was from just outside of Pittsburgh, or, or the, the majority of the, the two trauma surgeons were from Pittsburgh. We had two fantastic CRNA, just a, a group that came together that it was just this incredible experience of gelling and we did everything together and still talk once or twice a month and, uh, you know, almost 10 years later, but one of these things where we continue to evolve. And this was just about the, the same time as dismounted complex blast injury. A lot would come up from the Southeast aspects and filter to Fab Sharana, which was basically a level one trauma center in a tent. We just started using TXA, local tranexemic acid as well as systemic. And there were several of the first group guys that came in, just pelvis cleaved in half by a bomb, bilateral amputations, and just massive consolidation of effort. And again, people standing around going, that dude is getting on a flight to Bagram. How is he alive? Probably the most memorable experience was back in Jalalabad with the triple nickel 
In shortly before I left in April, the operation was uh, going after high-value targets in the Korengal. Uh, unfortunately, the 82nd 101st Air Assets would not allow us to fast rope into the top of this mountain. And so just like every young West Pointer learns not to assault uphill, that's what Third Special Forces Group was assigned to do. So we were the medical mission supporting that um, was a complete tactical and strategic disaster from an emplacement into the base of this valley, fighting up into the these mountainous, uh, very well fortified, very well seasoned militants that were raining hell down on the third group guys. But the incredible thing was that my partner, dear friend, doppelganger, Master Sergeant Scott Olson, was carrying one of our cell phones and could directly communicate with the FST. So at that point in time, Bagram and the medical unit, the Medical Service Corps unit that was supporting this operation, we basically just bypassed and said, we're, we're the gypsies that will be flying our air ambulance will now coordinate the medical mission through Jalalabad and through us as surgeons. So we basically shot everything from a medical capability through cell phones and a bunch of the air assets would go and grab casualties off the battlefield, be it Afghan commando or U.S., as well as our own aeromedical assets that were coming into so hot an LZ that they almost couldn't land and in some cases couldn't land. But every American soldier came off even though we uh, operated for several days straight, there was two medals of honor awarded out of that engagement. Silver or several bronze and silver stars and the most Purple Hearts awarded any special forces group since Vietnam. It was just a level of just incredible bravery on the basis of the SF group. The 173rd and the SF guys took that to such heart that uh, even before we were officially asked short combat tab as part of their family, I, you know, we were asked to be part of that family. And uh, that, that was the greatest honor I have ever had. Any specific cases that came out of that encounter that you remember that were just incredible that they would have died without you being there? He comes to us with an RPG injury. Uh, his leg was duct taped to his side, had been needle decompressed, but needed a chest tube and was just in extremis. And as we're taken aback and we're talking about having an amputation, pH level and, and lactate that would have made us all blush back in the United States, he just said, hey, doc, would you call my wife for me and just tell her that, you know, you got me? that I'm going to be an amputee, but it's it's all going to be all right and that you're going to save my life. And, you know, after I stopped crying, I went back to the operating room and did what we need to do and everybody lived. Tell us what led you to do extra training in orthopedic surgical oncology. You know, it's kind of cool. Um, John Eady was a former Air Force fighter pilot. So he flew wild weasels in Vietnam, which, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the uh, the phantom lore, the F-4 phantom lore, the wild weasel was the guy that would go into an engagement with all of his uh, uh, aeronautics and radar blazing saying, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. So that the Vietnamese and Russian uh, SAM anti-aircraft batteries would launch missiles. The wild weasel would go dark and then fly into the missile battery and, and kill it. 
And John Eady was a, a phantom pilot who, in his career, eventually flew chase for space shuttle, just this immense, immense pilot career. And then obviously flight surgeon, which in those days, you had to be a pilot to be a flight surgeon, became a doctor, and then was one of the first four horsemen of any king. And in the in orthopedic lore, the orthopedic oncologist is the guy who will, you know, cut you from eyebrows to toenail. They can go anywhere and do anything. Um, in, you know, when Dr. Edie was training, it was in a day where we were just inventing the orthopedic oncologist. So they were doing cardiothoracic surgery with the cardiothoracic surgeons. They would do chest wall surgery. They would do heavy duty pelvic surgery and obviously extremity sarcoma before most folk grasped what sarcoma was and that it was a very different cancer process. So at Eisenhower, we do our third year, uh, orthopedic oncology rotation with this godfather of orthopedic oncology, who to me was just, the dude could do anything. And we would go do chest cases. We would go do cervical cases. I mean, it was just like, I want to do that. But I fell under Dr. Edie and the cancer biology appealed to me. I mean, from a molecular biology standpoint, I get, get really nerdy into the DNA I could get very nerdy into the cancer prospect or the process itself. And then also this macro reconstruction. In other words, if you lose half of your pelvis, it's fine. I got you. And I wanted to be that guy. I I saw uh, Dr. Edie's love for his patients. I mean, he would go to weddings. He would go to funerals. He he was just part of their lives. And, And that also appealed to the humanity. Just that's why I did medicine to optimize the individual. So that that set the world on fire in terms of ortho-onc and the Mayo Clinic became where I wanted to train. So one thing that that you may not know, but you're you're known for are incredibly long, complex surgeries. Um, could you tell us what was the longest, and this is from the perspective of a urologist, I'm concerned about your bladder, but what is, what is the, <laughs> the longest surgery that you've been involved in? Uh, there were two. Uh, 33 hours is my record. Um, that was, uh, two cans of Copenhagen and several shifts of residents that, that was my record. I, uh, unfortunately fell asleep going to a stoplight on the way home and luckily ended up on the other side, waking up in a Nissan dealership, luckily not having hit anything, but, um, massive, massive pelvic Ewing sarcoma that had been irradiated, it had got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Actually, Dr. Klossy was part of that vascular reconstruction or approach uh, in the initial hours and um, resect this irradiated stuck tumor without killing the kid and reconstruct his spine because he also had lumbosacral metastases. We had to take L half of L4, L5, part of S1, and his entire ilium. And, uh, and then, oh, by the way, do it as a limb salvage. That was 33. And then the next near was 30 hours. Another massive combined team, synovial sarcoma and a beautiful young lady who, um, was my first giant sarcoma as a young attending surgeon. And she is still alive 11 years later. So she was a hemisected L2, 3, 4, 5, took part of her diaphragm part of her pelvis and all of her retroperitoneum 
and uh, and then reconstructed everything with a reverse pedicled latissimus flap. So obviously that was four teams. George Peoples, I cannot say enough for as a mentor, both uh, surgically and as a war doc. But Ray Top, another incredible war doc. Um, all these these giants of surgery that taught me so much were in participation, and I, I can't say thanks enough because uh, she's alive today because of that. But that was another giant, long reconstruction. I just love big cases. You have been listening to part one of our interview with Dr. Joe Alderetti. The second half of the conversation will be available online soon. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and come back to check out more incredible stories and insights from this outstanding war doc. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.